Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Now playing on demand is East Side Sushi, the story of a single mother who fights to achieve her dream of becoming a sushi chef against all odds. Also playing on demand is Mustang, the story of five orphan sisters in a small Turkish village who live under strict rule while members of their family prepare their arranged marriages. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And I. I think there's someone in my house trying to get me. I turned around and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this looming, ominous figure dart down the hallway out of sight. Matt, I told you I was going to the bathroom, and you promised to stop calling me looming and ominous. Stop trying to censor me. The internet is supposed to be for free speech. <laughs> anyway, on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll be discussing Daniel Barber's Southern Western The Keeping Room, starring Britt Marling. And inspired by the movie, which is about three women defending their home against two rogue soldiers in the last days of the Civil War, we'll talk about some other home invasion films to rent or stream at home right now, and maybe get a little paranoid ourselves. But first up is Opening Break, this segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Matt, you have the section this week. What are our picks? The first one is a movie that I haven't seen yet, but I'm, I'm very curious about. It's the latest film from actor, but also now director, Jason Bateman. It's called The Family Fang, and it's available now on VOD. Uh, the film also stars Nicole Kidman, Katherine Hahn, and Christopher Walken. I have a plot description here from a review of the film, a positive review of the film, uh, by Richard Roper. He calls it a darkly Freudian story about a legendary avant-garde performance art couple who use their young children as pawns in captivatingly cruel pieces ranging from a false bank robbery to a Times Square performance in which the children sang about wanting to murder their parents to a production of Romeo and Juliet in which their children, Baxter and Annie, had little choice but to embrace and kiss one another in front of the entire community. And the film is about those characters now all grown up. And Bateman and Kidman, I believe, play the siblings. Hey, Baxter. Where are you? In the hospital. I got shot in the head. What? You got shot in the head? I almost got killed by a potato. And Mom and Dad are bringing me home to recuperate. Tell them you can't go. Just stand up to them, Baxter. When have I ever done that? Welcome home. Oh, God. What's with the bandages? Did you see your brother's ear? We wanted to play along. I did see Jason Bateman's directorial debut, Bad Words. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I thought it showed a lot of promise as a filmmaker. Uh, I liked... I liked what he was trying to do. I, I liked his performance a lot. I thought he was a very good director of the actors in that film. It, the, the film, to me, felt a little too similar to Bad Santa, like in terms of the tone and what they were sort of going for. But I definitely thought, I want to see what, what this guy does next as a filmmaker. And that would be this movie, The Family Fang. So that's one I'm looking forward to checking out. That's The Family Fang. It is available now on VOD. Next up, also available now on VOD, is High Rise. This is the latest film from Ben Wheatley, and it is based on the novel by J.G. Ballard. Uh, some of the books of his that have previously been turned into movies are Empire of the Sun and Crash. This one is about the life of the residents of a tower block that begins to spiral out of control. 
Ben Wheatley is the director of films like Kill List and A Field in England and Sightseers. And I will be totally honest here, Allison, I wasn't a huge fan of High Rise. I'm kind of, I'm sort of up and down on Ben Wheatley in general. Some of his movies I love and some of them I, I don't. I loved Kill List. I didn't like Sightseers. I liked Field in England. And this one I thought was beautiful, very well acted, but I don't know. I haven't read the book. I'm, I couldn't tell you if it's a good or a bad adaptation of the book, but it didn't really connect with me. It just, I saw it at Toronto. Maybe it was the fact that I saw it sort of at the end of the festival. Maybe I was getting a little tired. I don't know. It just didn't really land for me. Have you seen Have you seen it? I have seen it, and I am also mixed on it. It stars an exceptionally handsome Tom Hiddleston. Yes, he looks very like handsome. as handsome as maybe anyone has ever looked in a suit. Yes, uh, or out of it, because he spends some of he the does, t- time he does sunbathe, pretty much naked. Sunbathe nude, yeah. yeah. Which I think will have some people signing up to see this movie already. Absolutely. Uh, I do feel like its metaphor feels a little harshly delivered. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a a bit little of, harshly. Yeah. I mean, there are times where this feels like it's uh, the concept is like Snowpiercer basically in a high rise. In a high rise, yeah. yes, I've heard people say that yeah. absolutely. But I don't think it has the kind of forward momentum in for multiple <laughs> reasons uh, that Snowpiercer does. <laughs> right, it's got a great cast though. Besides Hiddleston, it's also got Luke Evans, Elizabeth Moss, Jeremy Irons, Sienna Miller, and even though I I didn't love it, I know a lot of people who do, and it certainly is a movie that I consider sort of like an important like art house movie event like it's something to see and judge for yourself absolutely it's something i would i would definitely go out of my way to check out and have my own opinion about so that's high rise it's available now on vod and finally available on may 10th is the latest film from michael moore where to invade next the premise of this one is that america we kind of have a superiority complex we think we are the best nation on Earth, And in some ways, I think we probably are. But in this movie, Michael Moore travels the world showing how these different countries are better than us in certain ways. And the gimmick is that he's invading these countries so he can take their ideas back, uh, steal them and use them in America. And frankly, that conceit seems pretty lame to me. And I don't really think it does much for the movie. But I did find it pretty interesting to see some of these other countries, see some of the, the ways that they do things like maternity and paternity leave and health care and the cost of college education. I I found some of that stuff pretty interesting. It is a Michael Moore movie. It's not very different than any other Michael Moore movie. If you don't like him or, you know, agree with his politics, there's no reason to start watching his movies now or to restart watching his movies now. But if you're amenable to his point of view, if you like Michael Moore, I think you'll, you'll enjoy this one as well. So that's Where to Invade Next, available on VOD on May 10th. Oh, my God, any other going? Downstairs in one drawers. I'm gonna go get it and come back. Let's get to the keeping. We ain't leaving this house. Too many doors and windows and we're gonna fight. I don't wanna fight. We can hide. They don't know we're here. I just shot the dog. They're gonna come looking. You know what dog belongs to what Yang? Because they followed me. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose our main review by voting on one of three options. And in our last episode, we gave you three lady westerns, two new, one classic. The Keeping Room, starring Britt Marling, which is now streaming on Netflix. Joan Crawford's Johnny Guitar, available for rent. And the troubled but very well cast, Jane Got a Gun, starring Natalie Portman, uh, also available for rent. And the voting was pretty close, actually. This yeah. is one of our closer races. But in the end, the keeping room pulled ahead for the win. 
The Keeping Room is directed by a British filmmaker, Daniel Barber, whose previous feature was Harry Brown, in which Michael Caine played a London retiree who goes vigilante and takes on the gangs and drug dealers in his housing estate. So The Keeping Room is maybe not that far removed from that in spirit, but it is set in a very different time and place, uh, Georgia, or its environs, towards the end of the Civil War. Uh, Sherman's army is marching towards Atlanta. The three women and three women are holding down a house by themselves. Uh, Augusta, played by Britt Marling, her younger sister Louise, played by Haley Steinfeld, and their slave Mad, played by Muna Otaru. Uh, so that would make this more of a southern than a western, uh, though it certainly feels like a western in spirit. And part of the point of the movie is that war, the war has created its own frontiers in which civilization has been eaten away. Uh, and so these ladies face two advanced scouts from the Union Army, uh, played by Kyle Soller and oft-forgotten star of the biggest movie of all time, Sam Worthington. Uh, and these two have been pillaging their way across the countryside. And when they come across Augusta, they kind of fixate on her and follow her. And uh, things do not go well. So Matt, there are two movies here, really, I think, both operating on this idea of the old rules and societal structures breaking down uh, with the war. The first is this domestic drama about the changing dynamics in this household in which these three women have essentially been leveled, uh, put on the same level by the war. And the second is this home invasion story based on the idea that these men have been freed and basically assigned to break things. And now that's what they do. They are kind of feral almost. So do you think the movie joins these two ideas very well? Uh, no, I did, I did not. In fact, I, I don't even really think it gets that first idea across very well. It's sort of present in the movie in the early scenes, but then it mostly felt to me like it was kind of abandoned. Um, I didn't really get a ton of that. Once the home invading begins... Um, any sort of examination of the, the power dynamics between the characters, I didn't really get a ton of. I have to admit, I didn't really like this movie. I was pretty disappointed. Um, this would be one of my uh, less favorite movies we've watched on the show in a while. It it just, I don't know. The movie that it rem that I kept thinking of watching it, even though they're obviously set in very different times and they're very different movies, was The Witch. Which, that movie to me felt so like authentic and gritty and... It didn't feel like people sort of acting uh, this old time uh, or like putting on a movie. It felt like, I don't know, like a missive or something. Like a some, like somehow people had recorded that time. Obviously, it's ridiculous. It has the witch and all that stuff. But I don't know. It immerses you in this time, in this place, in a way that I never felt from this movie. I felt like there was a lot of people like acting, you know, like Britt Marling, an actress I really like in some of her previous movies. I didn't think she was very good here, especially the voice she's putting on. It just seemed to me, I don't know, it, the, the role didn't seem to fit her. It seemed ill-suited to her. And then you have, as you said, the forgotten man from the biggest movie of all time, Sam Worthington, not, not one of my favorite actors. And his role isn't huge, but it's important. And we can talk about those two male characters, I think, uh, is important to discuss but yeah, I, I was pretty underwhelmed by this one. What about yourself? Maybe liked it a little more than you, but I yeah, I feel like it didn't really achieve what it seemed to set out to do. Yeah. And I think that in part is because and when the home invasion happens, I think it's like fairly well done. It's yeah. you know, like it's it's a tense, com it's competent, right? It's, it's a tense it's a good kind looking of attack, movie. Yeah, in which the three characters who are being attacked have never really had to 
fight people before sure. and are put in this position of having to 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 figure that out. But I do feel like it is lacking in terms of the dynamics it tries to set up in the beginning. And especially the character, uh, Muno Otaro's character, which is like a very difficult character to try and write, you know, yeah. basically. Uh, you, in the, there's the the one scene where there's a real, I think, flicker of what the movie tries to do is one in which Britt Marling's character slaps her, sure. is upset about uh, about her, like, letting her younger sister go off by herself. Right. And... Uh, and then Mad and slaps, she slaps her back. Her back. Yes. She like looks at her for a moment and then slaps her back. Yeah. And basically is like, we don't do that anymore. Correct. Like, we don't, you don't like assign me all of the work and you don't assign me these things that upset, like right. the things that upset you. And I, I wish the movie dug into that more, Absolutely. but it really does not. Yeah. That's probably the best and most interesting scene in the movie. And yes. they really don't get into that. And right. in, in fact, I was especially troubled by the scene later in the movie where mad has this big speech about this horrible thing yeah. that's happened to her before. And the other two women are staring at her sort of aghast. And I'm thinking you are slave owners who've lived, I would assume, let's assume your whole life in the South in these horrible conditions. Would you really be that horrified by it? I wonder, I, even if you're going to take, which I think the you know, because the movie just starts at this point in which things have fallen apart so much, you never really, you get some of the sense that these are like fairly sheltered bells, you know, who, I guess, but yeah. like, I do think that I was, I was bothered that like the way in which this woman basically offers up this horrific pain, like this, this like years and years of, of terrible things that have been done to her as a way to like console. Yeah. They're there. Know? Yes. yes. And, and I don't think, especially if you're trying to get away away from stereotypes to get like that, that basically a character like this gets stuck, has gotten stuck with for, throughout the history of cinema in some yeah. of the most famous ways. Like you can't let her so much of her role be based on basically compliance and on um, based on, um, you know, consoling the white woman there. Yeah. And I, yeah, I feel there's another moment in which something that, that is very bad for this character happens and she just seems to kind of take it without any, rage or yeah that was another very strange moment in the film so to me. strange and I, I, comes out of nowhere uh, totally unnecessary and then her reaction just seems so like dazed almost yeah she and just... i suppose that t i guess dazed would be sort of halfway i mean you could say well she's in shock and given what these women have been through it's not unreasonable but in terms of dramatic stakes and and there is a way that that moment that we're alluding to could have driven an interesting wedge between the women right that would have really upped the dramatic stakes and instead they go completely the opposite direction and i i think it it uh, minimizes the drama and the tension in the in the last sort of act of the movie yeah i think that that was very mishandled um i would agree that i don't think Britt marling is particularly good in this i am not as big a fan of her as you are i think that there are times where she's great i really like her in sound of my voice yeah there are other times i think she as an actress tends to have a distance in her performance. She holds a, like a reserve a bit. Yeah. And I don't think that that serves this character well. Well, she can be very mannered, I think, mm -hmm. especially like in things like voice and affect. And I definitely felt that here. You know, the, in a way, it, the, it kind of reminded me of like a Charlotte Copley performance where there's an, where the accent is so intense and the, you know, like sort of the, the twang, the, the, and I, I'm sure it's accurate. You know what I mean? Like it sounds 
like someone could have spoken like this person, just not the person I'm looking at. It just there's like a disconnect. You know what I mean? Like you don't look like the person who's who I'm supposed to be looking at. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that. I, you know, I think the things that I did like about this film are particularly like the atmosphere it creates sure. in that beginning. There's one point where what the one of the characters says it's what if the world has ended and we didn't know and you can understand exactly what she means because like everyone is gone and uh all the rules seem to be gone when she does encounter other people yeah and And when and when these guys show up there is kind of a vibe of like a post-apocalyptic almost like a zombie movie right they just roll through and take things right and they and they or the road it kind of evokes the road the look of the film it does yeah and and they're kind of I mean, like, another thing that I think the film, like, glances at but never quite manages to engage with in a significant way is that you have these two characters who it's suggested just, like, have been so shifted by everything they've been doing that that they – this is just the way they act now. Yeah. Like, they can't get back in the mind space of being, like – how do you act towards people who are are not like that are not like engaged in the warfare? You know yeah. that, but I, it doesn't it doesn't really dig into that. No, I, I think certainly the time is right for this movie and having a movie about basically like sort of womankind kind of under assault by men. I think that's something that an idea that resonates right now in terms of what's going on in our culture. Like I think that there could be sort of a timely connection to this movie. But I just didn't feel like the, the 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 male characters were kind of fleshed out enough, you know? And it's one thing when you're making, like, a zombie movie and you have ten human characters and then just lots of faceless villains and you get to really focus on the characters. Here, it's basically a five-person movie and two of the characters are almost non-entities because they're just – they're just pure evil, basically. And they don't really get to explain themselves at all until the very end of the movie. And, and by that point, the movie's over. So, you know, it's like, why should we care? And we certainly care about the survival of the women, but it's just like there's no – it's no deeper than that. Like the movie seems to want to be this, you know, you know very stylish but serious – consideration of these ideas we've discussed but really when you come right down to it it's it's a it's a good looking rape and revenge movie or a home invasion movie and that's about it yeah it just has this unusual setting and and i mean also like and and yet another thing that i think is like an interesting potential element that doesn't get engaged with enough is the idea that i mean this the army is rolling through the war is almost over the women learn of this and kind of have to grapple with that idea and also the fact that, like, this is just part of war, including war that was, like, the the great American war in which Americans fought against Americans mm-hmm. is that, like, what, you know, like, you can't expect to be treated well during war. Like, the mindset of war is one in which if you are, like, these women, you know, just kind of trying to survive, you would run. Yeah. Did you – what did you think, without spoiling it, the, what did you think of the the very end of the movie? Did you like it? No, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was odd. I I wasn't I wasn't sure what they would do to have it end. Right. I mean, it does fit into the sense of like apocalypse, really. Yeah. Like there's there's and also it plays into the sort of the gender kind of the civil war between the genders that's going on right. because of what we should the also I don't think we've mentioned do. I, I really like talked about this that much but like the bad guys in this are the union are, are members of the union army yes and I mean it's I think very deliberately chosen just to also get around you know any very simplistic ideas of 
well, these are the good guys and these are bad guys. And the good guys acted like, you know, very, like, well, we're all well behaved. Right. And like, the, you know, that like uh, the Union Army came through and like left a whole swath of destruction, you know, and these women are in its path. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I don't, I mean, like, I don't I mean, think to me, it, it really seemed like it seemed like a premise for a totally different movie to me. Yeah. Like, that seemed like the beginning of a potentially interesting movie. It just seemed like a strange thing to end a movie on. Right. Um, I almost wondered if the movie was like half the movie we had seen and then that th- this last scene was then the, the, the interesting junction to a half of a different movie about where these characters go next. Well, that could be kind of interesting. I mean, that would have certainly been a little more different and unusual than what we got, which felt to me like trying to put a very arty gloss on something very familiar and and not even that uh, dramatic. Like, if you're going to make this kind of movie and you're not going to really dig into the characters and really get it at their psychology, then it better be really intense and really exciting and really dramatic. And it and, and it's just this movie just isn't to me. Yeah. I I'm sad because I feel like there is so much potential in yes. the three of them together. Completely on this agree. And the idea of like what that can eventually like what that would do to the your, the relationships you have. Yeah. Uh as as desperation sets in. And also when you're like, this is what we have we don't know where to go from here. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, it's one of these movies where they're trying to go for like a vibe of like spareness, you know, very stark and spare. And sometimes that can, you know, sort of suggest unspoken depths. And sometimes it can just make a movie seem kind of thin, which is how it felt in this case to me. Yeah, I agree. I I, I wish that it had kind of just, I mean, mostly the characterization. I wish that it had done more with that uh, because there is a lot of promise here that just really never gets fulfilled. I will say, I think you said that this is a very nice looking movie and it is. And I think um, the cinematographer is Martin Rue, who also worked on Harry Brown and the American. And there are some really lovely shots, especially uh, there's like wide shots. There's one shot in which like a, uh, a wagon is set on fire and mm-hmm. is like going across the road and other shots in which, but Marling's character rides a horse to town to try and look for help for something. And it's gorgeous. It, or it that, really or is. I, I, I think it's maybe the second to last shot, not the very last shot, or maybe it's the last of shot the sky. of the, of the house. Mm, yeah. And that, I thought that was an incredible shot as well. So yeah, the, Cinematography, no complaints about about any of the cinematography. Other things, uh, yeah, had some complaints about. Yeah, well, there's our shrug shrug at the keeping room. Uh, you can find it streaming on Netflix. Cue shots time on the show. We're talking about home invasion movies, home invasion thrillers, I guess, for the most part. They're usually thrillers. Allison, you wanted to mention one 
one special note before we get into our picks here. Yes, I just wanted to point out that we have a longer review of a, a kind of well-known home invasion movie, Panic Room. Uh, it is the main review of SVU number 56. So if you're interested in hearing us talk about that one, uh, take a look at that back episode. And That is a good example of one of these movies, I think. I think, it, yeah, definitely. It's one of the classic examples yeah. of like recent recent decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so what's your first pick here? This is a genre that goes all over the place. I'm very curious to see what, which ones you've picked. Yeah, well, I really associate this genre with like horror films, slasher films starting with the 70s into the 80s and 90s. So I was kind of curious for my own edification, like what's an earlier movie? How far back do these go? Where where can I find before they really became what we recognize? And that was how I found this movie called The Desperate Hours from 1955, which is one of the earliest home invasion movies I could find. It's directed by William Wyler, and it's apparently based on a true story of some escaped criminals who held this suburban family hostage for 19 hours. According to Wikipedia, which obviously is never wrong, one of the articles written about the incident, the real incident, became the subject of one of the most important Supreme Court cases of the 20th century regarding freedom of the press because the family involved didn't want it written about and they took them to court. Uh, the article then inspired a novel and then a play. The play starred Paul Newman. The film, though, stars Humphrey Bogart in what was ultimately his second to last movie. He died two years later. And He doesn't look great in this movie. He was diagnosed with cancer about three months after the movie came out. And you could just see clearly he's physically um, on the decline. But it kind of suits this character who's this desperate convict. He's broken out of prison. He's holed up with this family. He's waiting for someone to bring him money he needs to make his getaway. And I loved the opening of this movie. The credits play over this very slow tracking shot as... The camera is moving through this idyllic suburban street. It's clearly like a backlot street, I think. Um, I think that uh, I read that uh, one, of the, one of the Leave it to Beaver, Beaver houses was actually the house where this family lives. So that gives you some sort of image of what we're working with here. And the, the moving camera gives you this sense of like evil encroaching on this innocent place. And in the front yard of the house, there's this overturned bicycle, the son's bicycle, which is put in the foreground of a lot of the establishing shots. And it seems to be like a symbol of the way these crooks have like upended this happy family's life. And watching the movie and watching Bogart, it really made me think for the first time about how home invasion movies can be very good showcases for actors, right? They're very claustrophobic. They usually have, like The Keeping Room, very few locations, very few characters, there's not a lot of you know action and elaborate camera movements. They're about people trapped in these circumstances, and often some of those people are crazy lunatics, and that lends itself to big acting. And if you like Humphrey Bogart when he plays a heavy, you will enjoy this because that is most of the movie, him just acting tough and intimidating everybody, including the other members of his gang, the suburbanites that he takes hostage. The main issue with the movie is that it seems like, just as an observer, that he takes this family hostage for like a week and a half. They stay uh, overnight. He sends them to work the next day and just holds some of them hostage and is like, don't do anything or I'll do horrible things to your wife. It's just like he's waiting and waiting and waiting for money that never arrives. And the other members of the gang are like, we should get out of here. And, And you're sitting there going, yes, this is very stupid what you were doing, but... 
again, as a showcase for Bogart, as an early example of these home invasion thrillers, it's pretty interesting, and I, I enjoyed watching it. So that is The Desperate Hours. It's available for rent. I watched it on uh, Amazon. All right. Well, my first pick, I think, could equally be described as a showcase for an actor, actress, actually, uh, Kate Siegel, who co-wrote the film with her husband, Mike Flanagan. Uh, This is a film that was actually a listener's choice option we gave you. It did not win, but I think it fits so nicely with this theme that I wanted to bring it up. It is Hush, which is now streaming on Netflix. Um... Mike Flanagan, I would say, is one of the better horror filmmakers working today, uh, director of Oculus, of Absentia, and the upcoming, and from, from what I've heard from multiple sources, maybe unexpectedly good Ouija 2. It, if, if it is good, like it, it'll be a miraculous turnaround. <laughs> so Siegel uh, plays Maddie Young, who is a, a writer who lives by herself in the woods. The film takes place basically entirely in this house in the woods. Uh, And she falls into the path of a young man played by John Gallagher Jr., who, for reasons that are never explained, is going on a killing spree. Uh, And Maddie has been deaf and mute since she was 13, which makes the film a kind of update and a spiritual sequel to these home invasion classics like Sorry, Wrong Number, in which Barbara Stanwyck plays a bedridden invalid, mm-hmm. and Wait Until Dark, in which Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman whose home is invaded. Uh, these movies that use the vulnerabilities of being unable to see or being unable to move, or in this case, being unable to hear, uh, in order to kind of up the tension uh, to make someone who is is isolated and trying to fend off uh, to, to seem like kind of have other things to overcome in addition uh, in order to defend herself. And uh, I think that this movie in, in how it is like written in terms of how it's right, it, Maddie is written and in how the, the whole setup is, it handles a lot of the problems of the contemporary home invasion movie very elegantly, including the fact that you can just call for help on your cell phone or uh, just, you know, like the fact that you see, you feel like someone might have seen a home invasion movie and kind of figured out how these things would go. Uh, and and Maddie is a fiction writer and it incorporates this idea of her kind of like, like envisioning things in her mind of how something would go to kind of try it out. But, but mostly this is a, 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 a two person show. It's Kate Siegel playing this character. Uh, and then it's Mike Flanagan figuring out how to use the house and, and uh, to keep what is like a very simple setup of basically a guy outside and a girl inside trying to keep him away uh, and figure out different ways to keep that lively and tense and I, I think that the movie portrays uh, Maddie's inability to hear in a way that's that's pretty elegant in terms of allowing the film to fade into silence sometimes, but also allows that to eventually become, in a way that's very satisfying, a strength. Uh, it's a way in which she has an advantage over over this character who's attacking her. So you know, it's a very it's a very uh, slight film, I think, by design. It's very small. It's a Blumhouse production, and you know, by definition, those are usually small and created to to fit that scale. But uh, I think the kind of savviness with which it reaches back towards a tradition of of women in peril. Uh, home invasion movies I, I think it kind of updates that really well 
and has a finds a character who uh, learns to or like understands that she has to fight back in a way that is very contemporary and that I really enjoyed. Um, so it's it's a nice little movie, uh, and I, I think it's uh, it's fittingly creepy as well. Um, so that's worth checking out. Hush, it is available on Netflix. All right, that sounds in- intriguing. I, I'm going to add that to my my list in a in a few minutes. Actually, my second pick. I decided because so many of these are horror movies, I thought I would avoid horror movies completely on this episode, and so. I have, for my next pick, one of the few home invasion comedies, and that is 1994's The Ref, available right now on Netflix. A lot of these home invasion thrillers can be allegories, you know, the the family unit fighting to stay together against the pressures of the outside world, the family unit under assault from all these various stresses. You can read all sorts of things into different ones. And what I love about The Ref is that it totally upends that idea, and here the real threat isn't so much from the outside in it's actually from the inside out with this very screwed up marriage and in a weird way the victim here isn't so much the family it's the guy who takes them hostage and then has to listen to the husband and wife bicker endlessly uh, he's played by dennis leary and the husband and wife are played by kevin spacey and judy davis and eventually dennis leary gets so sick of the arguments that he basically becomes their therapist these people have a therapist but he doesn't do a very good job but having this guy take them hostage and tie them up and yell at them and kind of tell them to basically face facts, it actually helps uh, their marriage a little bit. And then he has to pretend to actually be their therapist when the rest of the family comes over for a Christmas dinner, including Kevin Spacey's controlling mother. Another element I realized watching The Ref that is crucial to home invasion movies is the element of chance. That Very often, the home that's being invaded is chosen completely at random. Uh, so... The movies are often about, like, the the cruelty of the Wheel of Fate, right? And that's true of the ref, too. But again, here, it's flipped. The cruelty is on the Dennis Leary character, who has all of this misfortune visited on him as he's trying to rob this safe, and it doesn't work out. And then he randomly takes hostage the most miserable couple in the entire state of Connecticut, maybe the whole country. And, of course, the rest of the family is totally screwed up as well. And there's a really fun parallel being drawn here between a really bad christmas with uh, your in-laws or your family with the idea of being taken hostage by an actual criminal the script is by richard legravenez and marie weiss who were a uh, brother and sister-in-law and it has a very sharp and funny take on family very dark sense of humor spacey and davis are wonderful together they just like kind of almost like a screwball comedy pacing to the banter and the arguing back and forth very strangely this is actually a a Simpson and Bruckheimer movie. I could not believe that when I went back wow. and rewatched this. And it might be one of their best films. It, it's weird that they would have made something like this. I mean, it really does cast this as a movie of its era. It's 20 years old. And it does seem to come out of another universe when Hollywood would make comedies about things like divorce and marital strife without big movie stars, without some kind of genre hook. I mean, today, if this movie gets made, it's a Sundance movie. It maybe is a cable series. It's not a big Hollywood movie. And that was one reason why I enjoyed watching it again for the first time in almost two decades. Besides the fact that it's it's really fun. It's a it's a really it's a it's a really fun time. For such potentially dark subject matter and potentially schmaltzy subject matter, it really doesn't 
get into that. It really kind of avoids the trappings of that as well. It's a it's a good movie. I recommend this one quite a bit. It is The Ref, and it is available now on Netflix. Well, my second pick is also from the mid-90s. It is from 1996, and it is a movie that that is a ramp-up to a home invasion, but uh, there's a lot that comes before it to, to lay the groundwork. It is Fear, which is now avail- available for rent, directed by James Foley and starring, of course, Reese Witherspoon as Nicole Walker, a Seattle teenager who, to the displeasure of her father, played by William Peterson, falls in love with an older guy named David McCall. Who's he played by? Played by Mark Wahlberg. Whoa! Yes. Um, this was uh, a movie that really kind of helped along Wahlberg and Witherspoon's careers. It is, when you look at it now, just fabulously terminally 90s <laughs> from the Seattle location to the right. alternative fashions, the belly shirts, oh discussions boy. of belly button piercings, oh boy. and the music, which includes not one, but two songs from the band Bush. <laughs> uh, it is, I think, and uh, this is not a term I'd heard before, and I think it's really uh, a kind of neat one. Uh, I, I've seen it described as an intimacy thriller. Along the lines okay. of other movies of that era, like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, Sleeping uh-huh. with the Enemy, uh, Single White Female, the, these movies that, that are basically the like, right, the call is coming from inside the relationship. Right, 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 right. And, and it's true with this one, there which is, it's, it's, you know, uh, David McCall, it's very polite, uh, very handsome kisses with too much tongue really right. but uh, the veneer is, of politeness breaks right. down to reveal the monster right. beneath uh he's very possess- he turns out to be very possessive he turns out to be very dangerous he's an underwear model he's an underwear model but ultimately he feels he comes, the vibrations ultimately he comes like Sorry. breaking into this house in seattle uh but i i think what is so great about this movie is that it is a barely filtered film uh it's just, like bubbling over with these kind of ideas about masculine competition mm. and particularly uh, it's, it's like this extremely exaggerated uh, nightmare version of, of, you know, father daughter kind of ownership issues and like letting your daughter go or like get having your daughter being taken away from you. Right. Um, you know, uh, like this movie starts off with really being one about William Peterson, just not liking this guy that his daughter is dating, his rebellious teenage daughter is dating. And he finds like a condom wrapper in, in, in her bedroom and gets furious. And at one point, one of his, I think his like coworkers basically says, you knew she wasn't going to stay a virgin forever. Um, and you know, he, he doesn't really know how to respond to that, but she even has, she, he, uh, she has like a bracelet. I think that's his daddy's little girl. And, and so, you know, you have this guy who is yeah an underwear model. Uh, who seduces her, famous scene on a roller coaster, uh, and, and it kind of it seems poised to like take his daughter away, and then of course is also like a psychopath. When the home invasion happens, as you said, a lot of the times when there's like a home invasion, it's like a family bonding together to like fight back. But this is in particular, it's the family trying to fight off uh, Mark Wahlberg's character and his like alternate gangster friends, mm-hmm. um, but they. Uh, are they called the funky bunch they're not called anything okay uh but they they this whole like last scene is like staged as if it's i don't know like her being handed off uh he 
Wahlberg always calls always calls William Peterson's character Mr. Walker, even when he's like going to kill him. <laughs> and in this home invasion that happens, there's one part where he says, Come on, Mr. Walker, time to give away the bride. It's just so filled with weirdness about uh, you know, a girl going from like uh, under her parents to under this under her husband uh, and I think what makes the movie like more tolerable than those ideas uh, would, would have you think is the fact that it is in large for large swaths about Reese Witherspoon who is despite being a a teenage main character in a thriller like this who is required to make some terrible decisions is like a fairly grounded uh, a grounded character who also uh, tells her her father and her boyfriend and then ex-boyfriend to back off when appropriate. Um, so I think that it has a little bit, like enough distance on the ridiculousness of of the kind of two guys eyeing each other, uh, trying to figure out who's who's like the alpha male. It, it, it manages to kind of engage that while also having the distance to to say that it's all terrible. Um, so I I think that. You know, this movie has been, it was like widely derided at the time, but was a minor hit and I think has become kind of a cult film since then. But uh, like a lot of those movies, like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, it's bubbling up with so much stuff, so many fears about, you know, the worst terrible version of of something. And in this case, the worst terrible version of, of the guy who will come and start courting your daughter. Um without actually thinking about the fact that hey maybe your daughter <laughs> your daughter can like figure out and how to have a handle on on herself and uh and what's happening but uh i think you know it's it's one that i really enjoyed revisiting and uh it's funny especially with witherspoon and Wahlberg, who have gone on to these long and kind of well established careers uh you know Wahlberg at the time was not someone who was being taken that seriously as an actor yet. Um, and he is uh, effectively creepy. Like, he looks at times, like, so boyish, and then at other times he smirks and does look, you know, dead inside the way he's supposed to. Does he ever say to Reese Witherspoon, say hi to your mother for me? No, but he does in, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie, and one of the famous scenes, uh, when when William Peterson tells him to back off, he starts punching himself in the chest <laughs> to, like, give himself a bruise so that he can say that, like... Oh, he was attacked. Yes. And the just look on his face as he does it is fantastic. It is, it is something to see. So that is Fear, a thriller and a home invasion movie together, and it is available for rent. All right, Allison, what time is it on the show? I can wait you out. Yeah, you probably can. I don't know if you can wait the listeners out. They'll probably just turn the show off, so I'll continue. It is time to talk about new movies with Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. We've just got one movie to talk about. Just one. Just the biggest movie ever. Captain America colon Civil War. Did you like it? I did like it. And I really, I mean, I like the Captain America, aside from the first Captain America movies, I would never have expected after that one that Captain America would become like probably my favorite the best part. Marvel <laughs> yeah, franchise, the best fran- part of the Marvel franchise. But I, I really liked Winter Soldier and I really liked this one as well. And I, I think uh, it, it's improbably good given how much, how many balls in the air it has. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, 
despite superhero exhaustion, a little bit of that. I I thought this was pretty solid. How about you? I I I agree. I think you you summed it up well when you said it's improbably good given how much stuff they have to do, how many characters they have to juggle. I do think they're getting very close to being like overcrowded. These these Marvel movies in general, and I say that as a huge comic book nerd and fan my whole life. Like they're they're coming very close. I mean, they're they're getting through it by the skin of their iron suit. You know what I mean? Like there are so many characters in here that don't need to be in here, but they manage to find enough fun moments, charming character beats, things that make you go, okay, well, Spider-Man didn't need to be in this movie, but he's so fun, so it's okay. Black Panther, you know, he's really not essential to the storyline, but Chadwick Boseman is great, and the costume is cool, and he has some cool fight scenes, and it's like, all right, I'm glad he's here, you know, and, and you go on and on down the line. And even though it's really a, a very crowded movie, Every character gets a moment, a scene, or a couple of scenes at least to not even just show their powers, to have a conversation. Like, I think that's what they've really managed to do really well with these Marvel movies is that they've built them up so well that you can now put them in a movie like this, which is really Avengers 3 in everything except name only. And we care about all the characters and we like seeing them interact in different ways. Like, you can, there's all these different angles to play. Put Hawkeye in a scene with uh, Falcon. Put Falcon in a scene with Winter Soldier. Have them argue over legroom in a car. Like, it's very charming. It's very funny. Like, almost better than some of the action scenes. It's just these really likable characters and very likable actors hanging out and doing things together and bouncing off each other. Well, I think that, like, Marvel has established itself as being, like, basically hangout, a series of hangout movies with interrupted by big action scenes. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think that this this one felt the most, like, TV to me, not necessarily in the way it looked, but in the way it depended on all of the previous movies to give you character development. Yeah, you really would have a hard time coming into it cold. And it was instructive to me, I thought, to, like, compare it to Batman versus Superman. I, I, know... I think you can't... Well, I forgetting all of the insane conspiracy theories by like sure. hardcore DC fanboys it's almost impossible not to think about Batman versus they're Superman when thematically this, identical they're, yes they're all about like accountability issues right. and disagreements about like responsibility and events from a past movie that have collateral damage and someone without powers basically doing all this stuff behind to, the scenes to yeah to sort of you, pit the heroes against one another right you even have you have like a uh, patriotic symbol going up against a billionaire with a lot of cool toys <laughs> yeah it is like uh, it is striking in a suit of armor no less in a suit don't of forget armor. batman's yeah, suit it of is armor strikingly similar but the difference is that batman versus superman had one movie and then went right into this without, you know, introducing Batman separately. You're just kind of thrown into this thing where you don't really care about either of these guys. And they hate each other. And they're just – and it's like you don't have any investment emotionally. Versus here where we've had, what, a dozen-plus movies with these characters. And we really like them. We don't want anyone to lose. We want everyone to win. It is. It feels like a breakup movie. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I think, the part that is is impressive about what Marvel has pulled off, which is that if you've stuck through it this long, you are invested in There's an emotional people. payoff. And, uh, you know, the, the fight that happens between, like, that kind of, like, builds over the course of it between Iron Man and between Captain America it is tied into their ideological differences, but also tied into their personal histories yeah. and their like resentments and their friendships. And uh, it, it is like, it, it has actual dramatic heft despite yeah. 
how much stuff it is also packed with. Yes. Um, yeah. I also, I like the fact that while nearly every superhero movie ends in like a scene of mass destruction, ironically, this was the movie this that one did does not, not end yes. with that. It ended with something smaller scale. And I frankly, I prefer smaller scale superhero stories. Yeah. You know, I think that, that the bigger things get, uh, the more you just feel numb to them. Yeah, I agree. And I know a lot of people were waiting because, you know, these they didn't know whether to see it or not. I know it was probably, I haven't looked at the box office, but I'm going to assume most people waited to hear what we had to say. Now they can go see, <laughs> oh, never mind. It made $180 million over the weekend. Never mind. But we've weighed in now. So I feel good at right. least. Well, yeah, now you know you can go see this movie. Yes, we give you permission. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. We wrap up the show every time with some rundowns of new movies on streaming, some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and also one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going to go first. Very well. Why don't you go first then and give us three new releases on streaming? All right. First up is a movie called Eden, which is new on Amazon Prime. This is from Mia Hansen-Love, uh, French director, based on, in part, on the life of her brother, who was a house music DJ. It is about a young man who kind of gets swept up in the rise of this particular scene in Paris and uh, tries very hard to, but never quite becomes famous. And um, however, his friends, who become Daft Punk, do. And it is, I really, really like this movie. It's uh, It's got a real terrifying sense of time passing you by um so that is eden it is streaming on amazon prime also on amazon prime is Ten Thousand kilometers um this is a movie starring natalia tena and david uh, verdigue uh, as a couple in spain who do a year long distance uh when natalia tena's character gets like a basically a residency in la so they are separated by 10,000 kilometers. And the rest of the movie, most of it is spent with the two of them in their separate respective locations uh, on Skype, Skyping each other and trying to bridge that gap with technology. And I think this movie very effectively and very heartbreakingly depicts the fact that there is no substitute for being in the same place. Um, so that is 10,000 kilometers. And finally, new to Hulu are... A pair of series that I've heard so much about and I'm really looking forward to seeing. Uh, they are Cucumber and Banana. Uh, these are two of a set of three kind of like matched television series uh, from last year, British television series created by Russell T. Davies, who was a creator of Queer as, Queer as Folk and worked on Doctor Who when it kind of revamped. Um, Cucumber is about a middle-aged gay man who breaks up with his longtime partner and kind of has to figure out what is next for him romantically. And Banana is a series uh, that focuses on LGBT youth in Manchester where, where Cucumber is set and that sometimes crosses over or features some of the characters. Uh, the other series is online only and I, I'm, I haven't actually looked to see if you can find it, but I'm sure you can. It's called Tofu and is a uh, documentary series dealing with some of the similar themes that was made for the web only. Uh, if you're wondering... What cucumber, banana, and tofu are all about. It's all different firmnesses of erections on a scale. Aha. Yes. Okay. So cucumber and banana, those are now on Hulu. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Well, I've got two from two different mats. Neither uh, one is me. Yeah. 
So first off, from Matt in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Matt writes, hey guys, I'd like to recommend The Frame, now available on Amazon. Written and directed by Jamin Winans, creator of Inc., another of my favorites. This is a beautiful and bewildering near science fiction exploration of the stories we live and the, the roles we play. The mystery keeps you involved right to the end, and if the last 10 minutes are a bit confusing, well, they still provide food for thought. And then we have a recommendation from Matt from ObsessiveViewer.com who writes, I have a streaming recommendation that just hit Netflix. It's a movie called Fourth Man Out. It's a comedy about a blue-collar guy who comes out to his friends on his 24th birthday. A lot of the comedy relies on the fact that his friends are quote-unquote playfully homophobic or bromophobic, if you will, and now don't know what is appropriate to say around him. But what really makes the movie endearing is how it deals with its main character's experience as a gay man hitting the dating scene. His painfully awkward experiences are universal regardless of your orientation and really elevate the movie from a silly comedy to a dramedy with something significant to say about dating, friendship, and political correctness. Thank you, Mats, for those two excellent recommendations. You're welcome. Oh, those mats not me sorry all right and one film chosen finally by number from your my lists you gave me number nine which is welcome to leith mm. welcome to leith is a documentary here is a description from imdb chronicling the attempted takeover of a small town in north dakota by notorious white supremacist craig cobb it's filmed in the days leading up to Cobb's arrest for terrorizing the townspeople on an armed patrol and his subsequent release from jail six months later. The film is an eerie document of American DIY ideals. Um, so yeah, there's a small, like a ghost town, essentially, a largely uh, emptied out town in, in North Dakota. And Craig Cobb goes up there and starts buying up plots of land with this idea that he can set up a white supremacist community legally where they would have like you know voting and all right. of that and they would basically have control of this township so i heard it's fascinating yeah and that is on my my list that's on mine too you didn't give me number four but had you given me number four that would have been on mine because i just added it a few days ago myself i'm looking oh. forward to watching that as well well that would have been awkward so i'm glad we didn't do that very awkward all right matt how about three new releases? Okay, first up, a double feature of films by one of my favorite genre directors, Joe Dante, Small Soldiers, and Looney Tunes colon Back in Action, both now available on Netflix. Small Soldiers is sort of like a darker and live-action version of Toy Story with toys coming to life that are basically like G.I. Joe's, and they try to destroy these other toys. Looney Tunes Back in Action was kind of a spiritual sequel to Space Jam in that it had the Looney Tunes and also live-action actors, except it's a Joe Dante movie, which means it's way better than Space Jam's. Uh, they both have fantastic effects. They both blend live-action and animation or puppetry in incredibly convincing and compelling ways. That was always something that Joe Dante did and does better than almost anybody. So that is the Joe Dante double feature Small Soldiers and Looney Tunes colon Back in Action, both on Netflix. Next up, one of the most interesting, most unusual, and arguably most important blockbusters in recent memory, even though it didn't make a lot of money. It is Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, which is also new on Netflix, made by a guy named Kerry Conran, who shot this sort of like test of concept for this movie in his house. I think he shot it in his living room. He made it on his personal computer. It took several years, and he was able to sell this thing to Hollywood and then make this entire movie on green screens back when that was still... Uh, kind of unheard of. The finished product stars Jude Law, Angelina Jolie, and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's kind of a pastiche of 30 serials, 40s war movies, and 50s science fiction all blended together in this very stylized CGI world. I don't think the final film is perfect or fully satisfying, but 
it's a fascinating kind of document and this snapshot of this period in the development of digital filmmaking. And at times, it's a very good-looking movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. It's something I want to revisit myself. So that's Sky Captain and The World of Tomorrow now on Netflix. And last, I have another sci-fi film for you, a classic I've always heard great things about but have never seen myself, and now I can because it's just been added to Netflix as well, and that is Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which recasts the story of Robinson Crusoe on Allison Mars, correct, starring Adam West right before he became TV's original Batman. And this is one of the rare sci-fi movies that is in the Criterion Collection. And on their website, they praised its technoscope photography and blazing color imagery. And they call it, quote, an imaginative and beloved marvel of classic science fiction. And so that is number two on my my list right now because I just saw that was added and I'm dying to see it. That is Robinson Crusoe on Mars on Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Well, first we have uh, a couple of recommendations from listener Robert Lewis, who knew we were going to do some movie. He didn't know which one, but some movie that was a a female-driven Western this time. And so he recommended some other female-driven Westerns. Uh, Raquel Welsh starred in three Westerns, getting better in each one. Bandolero is my favorite because it also stars Jimmy Stewart, Dean Martin, and George Kennedy. 100 Rifles was controversial since there is a love interest between Joe Brown and Raquel Welsh. Burt Reynolds also has a good performance in this film. And finally, Hanny Calder is entertaining, but it is a mess. So we didn't end up doing the theme of the female-driven Western, so we thought we would throw this in here instead. So thank you, Robert, for the recommendations. Next up, we have a, a bit of a different recommendation. It comes from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky, who wanted to talk about... News that is so cinegeek-tastic, I had to make sure you guys were aware of it. It appears that the Criterion Collection and TCM, Turner Classic Movies, are going to start a new streaming service in the fall. What I'm especially excited about is that this will include supplemental features to movies, including commentaries. Uh, This wouldn't surprise you if you know Criterion because they essentially invented DVD special features and commentaries. But one of the reasons I don't use streaming services that much is because I'm always interested in those other features that you can only find on physical media. So woohoo! Cheers! That's from Christopher in Lexington, Kentucky. And this is pretty big news. I think the downside is that as a Hulu user, I do enjoy having the Criterion movies there. And I have to assume that that is not going to be the case once that whatever contract is involved there is up. They're going to probably migrate all of that stuff to this new thing. And so you'll probably have to either cancel one to do the other or pay for both but that said this does sound really exciting a combination between criterion and and turner classic movies yes yes you're okay just making sure nodding they can't see the nodding so you are excited of course okay i don't know no no criterion for anyone i don't know yes i'm looking forward to this it is still like months off um but it is something that I, I'm really curious to see how this plays out. I should also note that Criter- uh, Hulu is not the only streaming service that has like been sampling Criterion. Fandor mm-hmm. also does like bits of like they they have like a 12 day version right. of like, multiple like kind of like 
small selections. Uh, so yeah, I am curious about how this will affect other streaming services, um, but I'm excited for this one. And I agree with Christopher. It is frustrating at times that there is no special features on a Netflix. I mean, they, they barely seem interested in movies now, much less movie special features. And I do enjoy going through my DVDs and Blu-rays from time to time and watching a commentary track. I love a commentary track. So it's great to hear that this new service will provide those. The Shout Factory TV website does have a few, not that much, but they have some commentaries. They do have a couple of things like that. So for their selection, if you like those kind of movies and t- TV shows, they do have a little bit of that stuff, which is worth checking out. So thank you, Christopher, in Lexington, Kentucky. All right, and one from your My List. Okay, you gave me number 10. Number 10 on my My List is... The Great British Baking Show. I don't even know why I added this other than people on Twitter. I see people talking about this show. Have you seen this show? I haven't, but I have heard a lot about it. People love The Great British Baking Show. I assume it's uh, people baking. Probably British. Yes. Going out on a limb. Going to guess those two fundamental things. I have no idea what makes it so good. Um, but I do like cooking shows. I like, I'm like. i assuming it's a competition kind of reality show. I, I like those. I like Top Chef, which is a competition reality show about cooking. So I did throw this on there. I haven't gotten around to it yet. But, I mean, I'm going to watch it at some point, I guess. I'll probably try it one day and see see if I like it. And I'll either keep going or that'll be the end of it. And maybe it'll be the not-so-great British baking show for me. I don't know. Maybe maybe some listeners will write in and say, No, you got to watch it. It's amazing or something like that. I have no idea. All right. Well, we have three movies for your next listener's choice pick uh, or next listener's choice vote. And they are I, I really have no idea how this one's going to go. No. But I I am curious. Uh, there are three two movies that I've seen already and that I I haven't excited. seen any of them. I'd be excited I'm a slacker. One movie which I've heard many good things about and uh, I'm going to see eventually. So maybe I'll see it this time. All right, Matt, you have the first one. Tell That's right. It. Our first pick is a film entitled We Are Still Here. It's going to be available on Netflix starting on May 15th. It's directed by Ted Gagigan, maybe. Uh, the plot description is, In the cold, wintry fields of New England, a lonely old house wakes up every 30 years and demands a sacrifice. So as you can tell from that, it's a horror film, indie horror film. It's got Barbara Crampton in it. It has Larry Fessenden in the cast as well. And this is a a little horror movie that's played the festival circuit that's gotten very good reviews. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Haven't had a chance to check it out. So uh, I don't know what the theme would be here. We just did home invasions. We could do uh, living homes. There's plenty of movies about like sort of living entities uh, that are homes or haunted houses. I'm not sure if we've ever done that as a theme. I'd have to look at the website. But that's definitely a strong possibility. So that's option one. We are still here, which will be on Netflix on May 15th. All right, option two is a movie that I've already mentioned earlier uh, in this podcast. It is Mia Hansen Loves Eden, starring uh, Felix de Givry uh, as Paul, who falls in love with this particular type of house music uh, as a teenager and then tries to make a career of it over, I think the movie runs about a decade, uh, tries to make a go of it and sort of does and then sort of doesn't. And meanwhile, all of these friends and these romantic relationships in his life come and go. It is a, a movie I really, really like. And I think it is kind of the the French uh, arty kind of other side to the Zac Efron uh, EDM movie, 
which was <laughs> super Hollywood. <laughs> How you many have, times have you mentioned that movie on this podcast? I think the other time that we've talked about it and then this one. So <laughs> that's, that's still twice. a lot. It's still more than I would have expected. There are only so many movies about DJs. And that's fair. There were two in one year, which makes it quite a coincidence. That's fair. That's um, fair. So Eden is a very, very different, but it is a movie I like a lot. And I think there are probably things we can talk about in terms of, I don't know, movies about... We could do movies about DJs and you could talk about We Are Your Friends again. Again, I could. But I think um, it might be a good opportunity to talk about movies about people who don't become famous Mm. because, I mean, that is part of the point of this movie. That's that's an interesting subject. In a great way. So that is on Amazon Prime. All right. I haven't seen that one, but I really liked Goodbye First Love, which was another Mia Hansen love film, so... I like I like that pick. Our third pick, another film I haven't seen. I, you have seen it, though. I have. It is Mustang, which is available right now for rent. It's directed by Denise Gamzi Urguven, I'm going to say. I, I'm having a tough time with names today. It is a Turkish film. It was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film this year. It did not win. I'll read you the plot description. When five orphan girls are seen innocently playing with boys on a beach, their scandalized conservative guardians confine them while forced marriages are arranged. And uh, again, heard nothing but outstanding things about this film. Was an Oscar nominee. I've heard it compared to the Virgin Suicides, Turkish Virgin Suicides, basically. There were definitely similarities. So you've seen this one? I have. You were a fan? Uh, Yes, though I have some reservations that I think we could discuss okay but you also had you said there were you thought there would be plenty to discuss in this one as well i do all right so that's option number three mustang which is available right now for rent all right well which of these movies should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit you can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com your vote must be received by monday may 16th at noon and after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which you can find at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for a conversation on next week's episode, uh, which will be around Tuesday, May 24th, maybe a day or two late. I'm going to be at Cannes. So, uh, How dare you? I know. Uh, but it will happen. FilmSpotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks-ish with more movie recommendations. Add the review you pick, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice. That's where we share more streaming suggestions, both from you guys and from ourselves. I think it's a great follow. I get stuff out of following it myself, and it's my account because Allison's the one who does most of the tweeting, and she's usually telling me things that I did not know. I'm so great. You really are pretty awesome. Thank you. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.